Ray and Marcus stopping in before we start this week's episode to remind you that our new client, our new sponsor, 1CBD, can help you in managing whatever little aches and pains you have in life. We keep seeing the evidence about how CBD helps to manage the pain, and both Ray and I use it with medicinal to help really knock that pain out. And that's why I was interested in hearing more about 1CBD, because they use all natural organic organic strains. They remove the THC in a safe scientific way that gives you the purest CBD available. And we've spoken with Ty Burgess, the CEO of 1CBD, a few times. He uses it and he helped develop this product because of his personal health issues. And his experience as a hospital CEO, he understands pain management and he put all that knowledge and experience into 1CBD. Check them out. Their website is 1CBD.com. That's O-N-E-C-B-D.com. I was surprised by the variety of products that they have. So it's not just, you know, tincture in a bottle with a dropper. There's gummies and all kinds of stuff. Go check them out at 1CBD.com. And there's a code you can enter to save some money on your first purchase. Right, Marcus? And that code for a nice discount is BALANCE, B-A-L-A-N-C-E. O-N-E-C-B-D.com. That's 1CBD.com for living your best life. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And this week on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, we want to dig into something that we've talked about before, women in rock and roll. And we did an episode where we talked about the women in the foundations of rock and roll and the predecessors to a lot of the women that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, there's some incredible women that have really been instrumental in the direction of rock and roll and how it's grown and to be able to talk about them is an honor and a thrill because of their importance in the big whole history of rock and roll that fun and balanced history that it is and there are so many women that come into the picture as you start to move from the 50s into the 60s and into the 70s uh, one woman who is in all of those scenes, so to speak, is the great Carol Kay, a session player. Uh, she played with just about everybody you know, part of the Wrecking Crew. And I thought it would be a good place to start, Marcus, because everyone universally respects her as a player. And when you look at the things that she did, the record she played on, as a session woman and as a performer, she opened a lot of doors pretty early on for women in rock and roll. She was on La Bamba and Donna, big hits for Richie Valens before the crash. Uh, the Crystals, Then He Kissed Me, uh, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. You know, that feel in the music there? That's her on the bass. Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Were Made For Walking. That's not a mind blower. I'll tell you what is. The theme to Batman. What? Are you kidding me? I just played that for our son the first time because he got a Batman t-shirt and a Batman cape. And when he put it on, I started singing the Batman song. And he's like, that's not a real song. He's a daddy. I'm like, yeah, that's Batman's song. 
And so we played it. And now to know that Carol Kay is laying down those bass grooves, holy cow. What an amazing musician she is. In the movie Love and Mercy, you get to see her role in the making of Pet Sounds. And it's a recommended viewing for anybody who listens to the podcast. Here's one that's going to freak you out. She played 12-string guitar on the Mothers of Invention. Freak out. I'm totally what? freaked out. What? Indeed, holy cow. But but the beat goes on. That's right. She's the bass player on that Sonny and Cher number one smash hit. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. And then she played with one of uh, her buddies, Glenn Campbell, the Wichita line man. As a kid who had some of these records, I didn't know who Carol Kay was. I didn't know that she was the bass player and all this stuff. And guitar player in some cases, too. So she appeared in sessions by Frank Sinatra, Simon and Garfunkel. She did play with them. Stevie Wonder, Barbara Streisand, The Supremes, The Temptations, Four Tops. That's right, Motown work for Carol Kay. And are you ready? She played with the Monkees. That's outstanding. So before they actually learned how to play their instruments, she was one of the people in the studio laying down the monkey grooves. Oh, yeah. Awesome. I did not realize either that I'd, I'd read that she had played with some of these musicians, but thinking about her with the Motown songs is sort of a shocking because of the fact that they used their own group of musicians for almost every single session. So to bring in somebody from L.A., part of the Wrecking Crew, is awesome. But think about it this way. Remember when they were talking about in the Motown episode how they would go to all the different cities, but they got the same sound? They heard Carol on records and said, you know what, maybe we need her on this record or that record. And that was part of the Motown thing, too. Open chemistry to the outside. Uh, the big hit for Barbara Streisand, The Way We Were... That's her on the bass. And check it out. I read this and I went, what? Marvin Hamlish was the producer and he yelled at her for improvising on the cut. And it turned out to be iconic. So you never know. She was uh, on the MASH theme for the TV show and Mission Impossible, the original theme song. That wow. wicked, That wicked groove right at the beginning yes. is her. Oh, my God. What an amazing human being. And she was an amazing enough of a human being to be able to work with Phil Spector. And she said this about him. He had some charts, but not all the time. Uh, there would be people like Gene Page or Jack Nietzsche who would do the charts for him. Phil would show us some things, but they weren't always written out. He'd try to hire the people for what they could do. Phil knew I would lay down the groove. I got the rhythm going. He knew it was happening. Wow. Carol Kay on working with Phil Spector. Wow, is right. Seriously. And there's a really interesting article about her on Louder Sound if you get a chance and you want to check it out. So there we are. We could go on and on and on with all the details, and sometime we will, talking about Carol Kay. Another uh, woman who really made an impact in the 50s and continued in the 60s is one that we both adore, Etta James. Oh, yeah, what a lady. Her place in rock and roll is solid and very important. And you can even hear uh, some of the uh, women, even in today's rock and roll, who have pulled influence from her. I think you can hear it in some of Dorothy Martin's work sometimes. A lot of power in there. Yeah. And a lot of that is uh, you know, shown in the fictional sense in the movie Cadillac Records. But that was her earlier part. And then she had like her big comeback. And then a couple times later, she would enjoy uh, renewed interest in her and her music. When she hit with it last, though, man, that changed everything for her and kept her going for a long time and made her iconic, I think. Yeah. 
you hear the pain, you know, you hear some of the pain in her vocals and you feel it. And that's one of the powers of music is whether it's happy, sad or whatever, you feel that deep emotion of the uh, singer. And she definitely brought you to the she brought you to your knees with her voice. The song can be a conduit to the soul. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. It's like they're releasing uh, everything that's bottled up inside them and sharing it with all of us, and we're lucky. In the 60s, there were two women who played a similar role in their bands on opposite coasts kind of around the same time. Uh, Nico was, uh, I'd say, brought into the Velvet Underground in New York, and Signe Anderson was part of the original Jefferson Airplane in San Francisco. I be a mirror, reflect what you are. I be the wind, the rain and the sunset, the light on your door to show that you're home. Hey people now, smile on your brother, let me see you get together. Uh, they were both very talented with short tenures in their bands, but they opened doors for women that weren't open. They were front person for a band that was recording and performing commercially. Uh, they both saw major impact with the, both them as the singer. And then in the next phase of both the Velvets and the Airplane, they were talented and fashionable and traditionally beautiful and both went on to have great lives after that, from what I know. You know, both of them were very cool. They were definitely ahead of my time, but I've been fortunate to hear both of them sing many times over the years. You know, moving ahead... I'm excited to jump into the next lady who some people see her as a muse. Some people see her as a maven, a manx. A manx. A manx. I, I'm sure there are people who think she's as crazy as a loon bird. So there are so many, so many levels to this woman. But she's an interesting one. Indeed. Marianne Faithful. Well, she was connected to the Stones with Mick and everything, and she was kind of a muse for them. And then the songs that they would get out of that, they actually turned a couple of them back to her. So she kind of takes on that Maven role. And the Minx part is obvious. She was sexy as hell in the oh, yeah. 1960s in London when everybody was taking off the clothes. And she was a true chanteuse. She really was. She had a unique voice, but she also had a unique problem with addictions. Uh, time and time again, failing to get off of heroin and other drugs, too, I, I suppose. Really, really a hard thing for her. And people gave her chance time and time again. In fact, there's a part in Lawrence Meyer's book about it. Uh, and if you have that book, you should check that out. But um, triumphant and tragic, and yet she carries on Marianne Faithful. My first experience with Marianne Faithful was about 1985, 1986. A college friend played The Truth, Bitter Truth on vinyl. And we were kind of blown away by it because there was a side of it that was so bad, but there was a side of it that was so good. It was one of those so bad, so good songs. And it made me interested in her. And I ended up finding a little bit of a microfilm or microfiche in the school library and reading about her being a muse and dating Mick Jagger and some of the stuff that she did back in those days. Big, influential, and the Metallica song. Oh, yeah. And even oh, mentioned and the Metallica song. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was a big comeback for her. And first time I heard it, I was like, 
Okay. But you know, it's one of those things that grew on me a little bit. But uh, she had many different runs, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, many lives. That minxy cat. Yep. Marianne Faithful. Yep. She definitely lived an interesting life indeed. Marcus and Ray here on the podcast. And uh, you always, like, you know, feel bad about, like, this was before I was born. Well, this is just about before I was born. Certainly before I was aware of what was going on. I've had to learn a lot of stuff about this through the years, too. I'm talking about the next woman that we're discussing here. It's Women in Rock and Roll Phase 2 from the 60s into the 70s. And I'm talking about Joan Baez. You have to call her the queen of the political folk movement from the 60s through the 80s and beyond. She's, She's still out there plugging for all the right causes. Uh, She started her recording career in 1960 and all her first three records, four records, they all went gold, which made her, you know, a bit of a a bit of a a player in the scheme of, of things. And it was around that time that she started the tradition of recording other people's songs and making money for them as a songwriter, I guess, making note of them. And she would get her records out there with Bob Dylan on them and a lot of other people. She did the songs of Pete Seeger and a lot of her influences. And Leonard Cohen was one that she championed but played a lot of his stuff on her albums later. Um, she was an activist from the beginning and continues to be here in the 21st century still plugging away causes that she believes in. She started out of the Cambridge, Massachusetts coffee house scene back in the 50s and 60s after her folks moved the whole family to Boston. She found her way there, and there were so many people who were simpatico with her. She just kind of found her spot in there amongst people that she already had heard of and knew and making her debut with Bob Gibson at the 1959 Newport Folk Festival. And you're saying, what's all this got to do with rock and roll, aren't you, Marcus? No, I mean, it's part of the rock and roll family tree. It's one of the great branches, and we're going to get to see where we go from here, and it's pretty fun to see where Joan takes us in that journey. You can find out a lot about Joan Baez online. There's a lot of information out there about her early days, how she kind of took New York by storm, her performance live of Ann Braden's Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, which was later a subject of a lawsuit involving Led Zeppelin. She was playing it from Anne's version back then in the early 60s. She continued to support other songwriters in her recordings, including Emmylou Harris, Joni Mitchell, Bonnie Raitt, and Judy Collins, who, of course, is another person that we're going to talk about in the equation here, talking about the women in rock and roll from the 60s into the 70s, phase two here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. And I think this is the part where we take the pause for the cause that refreshes here on the podcast. Marcus, what do you say? I'd say this is a fantastic time to grab a pint and get refreshed so that we can continue talking about these incredible women and everything that they have done for rock and roll. Hey, man, I've got great news for anybody who is a fan of Crooked Eye Brewery, our sponsors here on the podcast. They're reopened. What? That's right. They uh, opened last weekend with uh, just outside service, and they continue to fill growlers and crowlers in all your uh, 16-ounce cans needs. But they're serving in limited capacity outside. And as of Saturday the 13th, 
the music returns to Crooked Eye. That means there's going to be live music at Crooked Eye whilst you enjoy those Crooked Eye beers on the patio. The Crooked Eye band's going to kick it off, and they're going to be on stage on the 13th, and they'll be inside, and everybody who's listening will be outside keeping us COVID safe. Cool, right? Very cool. And you know what else I like about all of this, Ray? You can bring your own food and have sort of a live music, enjoy a beer picnic. Bring your Sammies, but also bring your masks and be patient. Practice social distancing. That's a request from everybody at Crooked Eye, including Marcus and I. Yes, indeed. And remember, if you're looking for a place to go right in the heart of Hatboro, there is a place for you. Serving the cure for what ails you since 2014, we're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery and keep up with all the developments on their social media, mainly on Facebook. The best way to know what's going on today, tomorrow, and all this week at Crooked Eye Brewery. And there are adjusted hours, Marcus. They're closing at 8 Monday through Thursday, but open later now on the weekends as the music starts to return at Crooked Eye. Well, in our earlier days, uh, we mentioned that Joan Baez was on Vanguard Records, which was like the big folk label to be on for the commercially successful folk artists in those days. She later moved over to A&M Records and contributed two songs. You're going to not believe this, to the science fiction movie Silent Running. Whoa. Uh, yeah. Whoa. She did what she could commercially in some cases, like stuff like that, uh, to help fund some of the stuff that she was doing politically. And she was very much against uh, the war in Vietnam. And she also stood up for music, not just by women, but people in general that she really liked making a huge hit out of the bands The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. In fact, I think that's the first time I ever heard of Joan Baez was hearing that on the radio. And there she is, Joan Baez, still with us and still going strong, man. Pretty fascinating life. I recommend you uh, read up on her a little bit. She's done some pretty incredible things. Now, around the time that she made the move to A&M, which was one of the really cool, hip new labels emerging in California, Judy Collins was signed to Electra Records, which started out, even though it morphed into many other things, started out as a folk label. And Judy and Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell and many other songwriters would cross paths through the years. And the thing is, somebody like Judy Collins, as much as anybody, was a great interpreter of songs, a pop star who could sing with soul. Uh, she really found her niche with burgeoning songwriters that included Joni Mitchell, Stephen Sondheim, Pete Seeger, Sandy Denny, who we'll talk about in a little bit, and the great Leonard Cohen, Gordon Lightfoot, and yeah, Bob Dylan, too. Susan takes you down to a place by the river But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain I can see through the water that runs down my drain So there's Dylan with all these women recording his songs. The birds are recording his songs. He's getting fat checks off of other people's performances because of the radio play. And Judy Collins was a pop star back then. Everything she did got her on the radio. That's pretty impressive. I did not know some of that early stuff about her. The only things I really know about Judy Collins are 
we had a couple of her cassette tapes. My dad was a fan with her because he went to East High School in Denver, Colorado at the same time. As no kidding, she really? Totally. Wow. My aunt claims that she knew Judy Collins, but I don't know. My dad said that he knew Judy Collins, but he was just like, she was a pretty girl who went to East High School. A couple people from Earth, Wind, and Fire were at uh, East High School a couple years after my dad as well. So, ah. like Joni, who we talked about earlier, had contracted polio as a child. And Judy Collins? Yeah, did? Judy Collins did too. And ah. she ended up paying more attention to music at that time because she was forced inside until she got better. Well, here's something that'll blow your mind. Both she and Alice Cooper have both covered the song Hello, Hooray, written by Rolf Kempf. What? what? Man, this episode is loaded with what? <laughs> Holy cow. And she was also amused because uh, she was Stephen Stills' girlfriend at one point, and she was the inspiration for Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. Yep. Which she had. Yeah. Well, I was looking through some of uh, her songs before we recorded, and Roger McGuinn played with her. Paxton wrote some of her songs. Randy Newman, Donovan, she performed songs from Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, as you mentioned. So she recorded songs from all these incredible songwriters, and she was often referred to as the golden voice of folk music. Judy Collins on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, looking at the women of rock and roll phase two in which Doris gets her oats. Now, I want to talk about a woman they called Faye. She's one of your favorites because she was amused to so many and a key figure was a connective tissue person. She was the person who kind of knew everybody and helped people get connected. Tell us about Lithophane Pridgen. Don't know a ton about her other than the fact that she was a muse to many, including Jimi Hendrix, Otis Redding. I think Sam Cooke was in that list. I think there were a few Motown musicians that were in that list. And she really was an inspiration to them because of the way she was as a woman. There was just something about her charisma and her style and her persona. I think she kind of had that Eartha Kitt thing going on where she kind had that real sultry meets... muse sexiness, but not with the singing yeah. skills that like a, an Eartha Kitt had. But boy, she was uh, definitely one of those women who influenced uh so many musicians and Foxy Lady song that they say was uh, written for her. Well, there's a whole podcast about muses, and I'm sure they're just nodding their heads going, okay, boys, you're talking about the rudimentaries. Let's get deeper if we're going to talk about <laughs> muses. But I want to talk about Mo Tucker. We're talking about Maureen Ann Tucker. Uh, she was unique in as much as she played a different kind of kit, a different kind of way, and she was a woman rocking the hell out of the drums in the Velvet Underground in the early days. And then she'd return later to rejoin the band. But she was, quote, the kind of girl that could rock the shit out of the drums, end quote. I love the fact that that is used to describe her, but it also explains that why she rocked the shit out of the kit is her style of playing. She played standing up versus seated. Right. I guess after having seen most drummers on this planet sitting down, I don't know why that would be better, but for her it was easier. She used a very basic sim simplified drum kit of tom-toms, a snare drum, an upturned bass drum, playing with mallets versus drumsticks. I don't Just where I'm going 
everything different from the quote-unquote normal of rock and roll in that time frame. And I will say that she went on to inspire other drummers, men and women, coming down the line to do what they wanted to do, including standing up and playing the drums that you thought should be in your kit, which is what Mo really did. It's one of the things she innovated, to be the drummer that you want to be with the apparatus that you have. But she played a minimalist kit and kicked the living shit out of it. And then you throw in the androgyny in the 60s, which was totally an Andy Warhol thing that he loved. Uh, her image, bingo. her look. Yep. Yeah. So Well, image was always part of it, and the substance of things became more and more important for women in rock and roll later in the 60s. Two women that we linked together in part one of this thought process uh, on women in rock and roll are Grace Slick and Janis Joplin. They came out of the same scene around the same time. Uh, they were powerful women leading powerful bands into the rock and roll revolution. I think that, that collectively their energy was unbelievable and, and hard to ever match. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small. Have you heard anybody in any scene since then sing with the power, the depth, the emotion, and at the level of greatness that those two women have together in the same time since then? I don't know, but we could look into it. We could definitely <laughs> look into it. I mean, there are a few women who have sang great over the years and who are incredible vocalists and singers and talented, but the way these two women sing, it's a whole new level almost, it seems. And for women who wanted to really rock, that was the power that they harnessed and took a hold of heading into the 70s and beyond. Can I talk to you about my first girlfriend? Yeah, you bet. How old were you when you started dating? Well, we've never met, but Roberta Joan Anderson and I go way back. I'm just saying... Uh, she is the epitome of the reckless daughter. Grew up in Alberta, Canada. Rough life. Air Force life inside the artist was too full. I'm talking about Joni Mitchell. You know that, right? No, oh, totally. I My know. first girlfriend. We've talked many times about your love for Joni Mitchell and her <laughs> incredible voice and uh, some of her amazing songs. You know what the thing was when I first caught on to Joni Mitchell was around the same time she was starting to hit pop radio on her own. I heard of her, but I hadn't heard her. But around the same time as that, which is Ladies of the Canyon, she really was becoming her uh, own artist uh, around that time with Big Yellow Taxi and what, everything else, a circle game. Something in the other songs made me feel something that I hadn't felt before. Then I started going back and discovering the first two records. Then she put out Blue. Songs are like tattoos, you 
And that blew my mind, literally. Different blue, different spelling, but man, it blew my mind. She made you feel in those records that were transformative from the 60s into the 70s. Ladies of the Canyon was March 1970. She's right there at the crux of the transition of the decade, delivering stuff that should be just, you know, filtered out as folk music. But here it is, crossing all these lines and becoming pop hits as well. And then she would later cross musical lines and continue to do the same thing into the 70s with albums like Court and Spark and The Hissing of Summer Lawns. She's an icon, and even though she's had her health problems, she still tries to get out of the house once in a while, leaves the canyon. She is, in my mind, the queen of Laurel Canyon. And I love Joni Mitchell and all her music and all her different forms. I could talk about her forever, and I hope that we do like one of those big long episodes about her coming up sometime soon on the podcast. I'm sure we definitely will. And some of the things that I found out while looking into her is that she busked as well for money instead of playing in coffee houses. And I found that to be interesting because we've come across many musicians who have busked for money. And I think it's great because you hear that in their song and in their stories. And it adds interesting and unique style to their stories and their songs because some of the stuff that you hear is stuff that they've learned whilst busking for money whilst busking whilst busking he said with a bad accent (laughs) (laughs) but well you know there was that period in their life where they didn't have the options maybe and busking was a, a valid option and there was a lot of it going on and it led to things that led her, uh, even that was before she was Joan Mitchell. She was Joan Anderson back then. And it leads to her getting to know Chuck Mitchell and they get married. And, and that doesn't really work out so well. But part of that thing was what brought her to Philadelphia. They kind of got on the folk circuit. And she would play at uh, the second fret right around the corner from the old WMMR studios at 19th and Walnut. Uh, she had places like that in Boston and throughout the East Coast. She initially got her in at uh, MMR because of Tom Rush, the great Tom Rush, uh, who she had met in Toronto. So these things all connect, man. They all connect. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of debate about who brought her around the corner the first time and brought her upstairs. But it's a neat connection to Philadelphia, the area where we live. You ready to talk about a dangerous redhead? The dangerous redhead in my book, Marcus. You're right. That's a... We've never had a double... Seriously, what a woman, and she can play like nobody's business. I mean slide guitar. Born in Burbank, California, now age 70, which I think of her perpetually as like 30. And Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) 
We're talking about Bonnie Raitt, who uh, continues to be an icon. Uh, She is not only a musician, but like Joan Baez, one of her inspirations, she's an activist and has been her whole life. And she's also a mean fucking slide guitar player. Used to trade paint with her buddy, Lil' George. Her father was a Broadway star, John Raitt, and his first wife, uh, Marjorie Haydock, is her mom. She was a pianist. And so there's music around the house all the time because mom and dad were all involved in music and because of stuff like that, she befriended people like Fred McDowell and John Hurt, which had a huge influence on her style and direction. And she probably learned a thing or two about that slide guitar. My introduction to Bonnie Raitt was a little later. It was when she got a few big radio hits that were on like adult alternative, alternative radio and rock radio. And then I started doing a little bit of research on her and seeing some live performances. And man. Can she play? She can hold her own against any of the best of those old blues guitarists. She is tough on that guitar. She's just a great woman, a fantastic all-around human being. And we should do an episode about her, too. Hey, here's another connection to WMMR. I was just going to ask you about that. You're talking about the Blender Blues? Yes. Uh, The Blender Blues, which for a long time you had to have a direct copy from, recorded directly from the air. To, to be able to hear that song, which she performed live on MMR. You open it, let me up. I want to thank you for babysitting my dog. She's been gone for a couple of months. My brother has been corrupting her up in New Hampshire. She's learned all kinds of strange tricks. Well, it's nice to have a companion on the road. Me and a dog in Freebone. Traveling off into the sunset with the Penn State basketball team. <laughs> this is a tune that I wrote uh, a whole couple of Christmases ago, and I gave I gave uh, this friend of mine a blender for Christmas, and uh, uh, a friend of mine, another friend of mine, just came back from London, and uh, he wrote another verse for it. <laughs> It's just ridiculous. <laughs> oh, I'll see if I can stoop that low to put it in. Needless to say, this is a spoof. Let me be your blender, baby. Don't you know I can whip, chop, and puree? Won't you let me be your blender, baby? Honey, I can whip, chop, and puree. And then in 1970, she also performed at the Philly Folk Festival, opening up for John Hammond at the Gaslight Cafe in New York City at that time as well. So... She the was thing making... about the folk festival was that she played with Mississippi Fred McDowell, who she met through her family and connections, right? Mm-hmm. And she goes to the folk festival and she starts making friends. Now, you can't imagine how so vivacious, talented, outgoing redhead uh, would ha- make so many contacts. But she did somehow. Hmm, I wonder how. I don't know. She just has that electromagnetism. Oh. I met her once. And I was like, uh, 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 if there's, if I show you the picture of it, it's, you, I look like I'm, uh, 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 anyway, Whoa. uh, but she had a hell of a career in recording, um, signing with Warner brothers. She did so many great records that uh, really showed a woman could rock, could front a band, 
at the same time as other women were doing other things, she was doing her thing. And that included making albums like Give It Up and Taking My Time and Home Plate. Great songs on them from all different kind of writers. She became a, a tour de force not only for women in music and an example of you know what you could do as a woman in music and became powerful in that regard. She was influential with a lot of musicians in the California scene and all over the place, right? She was integral to the formation of Muse, which was the Safe Energy concerts that were held in New York back in 1979. I was at those shows. I saw two nights of them. And to see all those artists pulling together, her and Jackson Brown and Graham Nash and John Hall, uh, as well as all the other artists that played, pulling together their energy and doing something that was really crucial for those of us who lived in the Pennsylvania area at the time, because we were worried about what was going on at TMI, you know? Now, did you see her on stage with anybody, or did she do her own set at that concert? Yes, and yes. <laughs> who did she who did she play they with all at that together. show? But they like, all like together. do you remember any of those like any of those like combinations and songs or any of that at that show? Because that sounds like a pretty incredible moment. I would have been thirteen dude. and my parents would have been like, No, can't go. Dude, dude, dude I was twenty one, I was at Madison Square Garden Fair. with my friends. All my favorite fucking rock stars were on stage in one place. I was so fucking high, I'm amazed I can remember either night. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Alrighty. Also, she did. She she continues to do activism, and she was part of the Sun City Project with Little Steven against apartheid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, she also has been integral in making sure that the blues artists that influenced her and so many others, not to mention some of the people that she knew, are given proper memorial out there. Uh, working with the various blues foundations and the people that she works with at the Rhythm and Blues Foundation. And she's got a, uh, a whole list of stuff that she's done to help honor those who came before her and all the people who came uh, before them even in some cases. The great Bonnie Raitt, one of the great women in rock and roll in the 70s for damn sure and beyond. Oh, absolutely. And the amount of incredible musicians that she sh- shared the stage with is just beyond If you were somebody who collected and put rock and roll posters on your wall in the early 70s and you like to put the hot girl rockers on your wall, you definitely had a poster of Linda Ronstadt. Oh, he's (laughs) smiling. I know he did. He did. I actually was not allowed to. My dad loved her music but thought she was the worst dressed lady in music. Uh Uh-huh. I'm like, dude, but you like her song, so who cares? And she's really pretty. And he's like, you're eight. Stop it. Uh, Stop it. Well, to get to that poster, it's a long ride, Marcus. Uh, Linda Ronstadt was born and raised in Arizona, uh, worked on a ranch. It was like a real, like, you know, multicultural lifestyle out there. She had Hispanic heritage. And I never knew that because I thought Ronstadt would be like some kind of German name. So, um, But she had an interesting life and an interesting family uh, that gave her, I guess, the encouragement and the opportunity to really pursue the music that she loved. And she ended up moving to California. Go figure, all those crazy kids are moving to California, Marcus. I know. Everybody's moving to California. That's where you had to go at that time to make it in music or New York City, if I'm not mistaken. And she ended up in a group called the Stone Ponies. Her recording career as a solo artist 
is incredible. It's worthy of an episode here on the podcast. From starting in Arizona and having some success in California, she stuck with it and uh, visited a friend from Tucson, Bobby Kimmel, who was in Los Angeles during an Easter break from college in 1964, just before she turned 18. And that's when she decided she was going to L.A. and she was going to make it. But it took her some time. And if you think about it, from 1964 to when she really started to break out in, what, 68, 69, that's, it's a long time trying to make it work, you know, following your dreams. That is, but it seemed like, and from what we have researched in the in the past, a lot of these bands had to play for four or five years and really develop and grow before the record companies would give them a shot to record a song or two. And in the spirit of artist development, you're looking at a couple records that were kind of starters, and then she really got it going with Heart Like a Wheel, Prisoner in Disguise, Hasten Down the Wind, one big hit record after another all through the 70s. Like I said, a whole episode about her and her career after her rock and roll and pop life into the 80s and beyond when she got into doing some stage stuff and just an incredible lady. And she's been ill of health lately, and I hope that she's feeling all right. She's got a lovely life there. And I saw her on, I think it was Diane Sawyer, and she's not well. We wish her the best. Linda Ronstadt, one of the great women in rock and roll, very powerful force in positive ways for women in rock and roll. Very powerful force. Her songs were a constant at our house because my dad and mom both loved her, even though my dad didn't like the way she dressed. And one of the other things that I found out and did not realize during the researching of this episode is that she and Frank Zappa uh, did a commercial together claiming that Remington Razors cleans you, thrills you, and may even keep you from getting busted. Can you think of a better gift than something that helps a guy look good and feel good every single day of the year? Can you? What? Exactly. What is right? It's phase two of women in rock and roll on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Marcus and Ray talking about some women that can kick ass and can rock. Uh, a lot of folk rock in the initial phases. But as we head into the 70s, more and more rock and roll, more and more straightforward rock. And a lot of the young women who are, I'd say at that time in high school, are starting to think about the future. And one of the women who was ahead of them in the curve and inspired a lot of the women in rock and roll in the late 70s, and into the 80s and beyond is one Susan K. Quattro, better known to the world as Susie Quattro. You know, I am definitely did not get to listen to her a lot growing up, but one of the things that I've learned over the years is that she was big overseas. And yeah, my first and really only childhood memory of her, and we'll get into talk about that, is her being no, leather. let's talk. No, no, let's talk about it now. Right. You're gonna bring it up. Let's leather talk about Tuscadero it. Leather on Happy right. Days. Yeah, the, she was. the cool bass player. Chick. What are you doing in these parts? Cute. Oh, thank you. no, seriously. Uh, what are you 
you doing in town? Well, we're looking for a job. I mean, I, when I was at school, I got together with a couple of friends of mine and we formed a band, Leather and the Swades. Leather and the Swades, very catchy. So you're looking for work, huh? No sweat, no sweat. <laughs> Old Ralphie, he'll get a job right at Arnold's. They can play at Friday night's freshman come to Arnold's Fest. Uh, uh, excuse me, Leather. <laughs> <laughs> See, old, old Ralphie here is joshing. I am? Yeah. He's joshing because he knows that uh, Arnold has a perfectly good in-house band. It really needs the money. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe we could work something out. Work something out? <laughs> yeah, she was Pinky's sister. It. Yeah, her, her younger cousin. sister. Her younger, younger sister. sister, who was the bass the player badass. in the band. Yep. She was a badass. Yep. Well, you know, not a lot of people may even know who we're talking about, other they may not even remember the Tuscaderos or Happy Days, okay? Susie Quattro is someone who sold over 50 million records worldwide, never being a big hit, hit here in the U.S., but as huge down under, and uh, one of the great women in rock and roll, um, kind of built her own thing and did it her own way, did some other media, TV, and films and stuff along the way. I I just saw something about her waiting to get over the COVID, you know, period and get back to playing concerts in Australia. And she is the first performer I ever saw live on a stage. Uh, she was opening for Alice Cooper on the Welcome to My Nightmare Tour, and it came to Philadelphia April 25th, 1975, my first concert. So before Alice came out and blew us all away with that amazing show, she opened the show and that was on the tour for Your Mama Won't Like Me. And uh, she was right. And it was a lot of fun. And I, I remember it being fun. And, of course, we were pretty lit up. And I also remember the leather suit, man. She had a, a like a two-piece top and bottom leather suit. That had to inspire a lot of women, like girls in the Runaways, including Joan Jett, a lot of punk rock girls. And you look at a woman who's doing it all her own way, in the leather suit, opening for Alice Cooper. Fuck everybody, here I am, right? And then she goes on uh, to be on Happy Days and do some other stuff, too. She had a whole career that takes her, you know, roundabout and back to music. And uh, there she is, Susie Quattro. On the imbalance history of rock and roll. Listening to some of her songs uh, during the preparation of this, you could hear glam in there. You could hear Joan Jett being influenced by her. You could hear the uh, Runaways oh, being yeah, influenced yeah. by her. You could hear it directly. Even some of the, even some of her slower songs, like some of her power ballads, you could hear the influence of some of the eighties songwriters. Yes. yes, you could hear it in there and. I was like, wow, this sounds like some of the power ballads of the 80s hair bands. And I was like, holy cow. Like the cow. inspiration for Total Eclipse of the Heart kind of shit. You know yeah, what I'm talking exactly. about? Exactly. Yeah. Again, she's somebody I'm going to definitely have to read more about, learn more about. And she has an impressive career that girl power. I mean, girl power. And, That's it. Girl power. And. Yep. She's going to be somebody who carries us forward as we talk about some of the other great women that include like Chrissy Hine and Tina Weymouth and some of them moving forward. And she will be part of that as well with Joan Jett and all of them. 
Lita Yeah, because a lot of these careers didn't end in the mid-70s, which is kind of what we're focusing on from the 60s into the mid-70s. Talking about girl power, here's a woman who was all about girl power before there was ever a term for that. She was just unbelievable and fully on point. I'm talking about the one and only Bonnie Bramlett. She came from hardworking people and would go on to become one half of the duo Delaney and Bonnie, and they worked with everybody cool, including Mr. Cool himself, Eric Clapton. She was a backup singer for blues musicians like Albert King and Little Milton. And it was crazy love. It really was. They said it was like great and terrible, uh, loving and terrifying all at the same time. They were on Stax Records, and there's Bonnie Bramlett right in the middle of it. And word is, and I didn't know this, that she was originally asked to sing the Gimme Shelter duet part with Mick Jagger with Stones, but Delaney wouldn't let her do it. Imagine the fight over that shit. And then, of course, Mary Clayton got to sing on the track. So stuff like that. There was things that were great, and then there were things that weren't so great. And apparently, to some degree, her relationship with Delaney mirrored the relationship she had with her stepfather, which was not good. Uh, She does have a legacy in Becca Bramlett who continues to perform and play music. Uh, She was a tough lady. I remember one time in the 70s, she famously punched out Elvis Costello in a hotel bar for referring to Ray Charles with the N-word in some regard. And she just basically walked over and punched the shit out of him, knocked him right off the stool. It was uh, pictures on stage days later, a couple shows down the line, where he still had the black eye showing. From the oh, yeah. You know what? No to that in every fucking way I can think of, okay? But Bonnie had problems. She did. She started doing coke a lot when she was married to Delaney, and apparently she also had depression, and um, she looked for help. She was planning on committing suicide. Instead, she thought about her kids and called a hospital and got herself some help to try to break out of the addiction uh, that had basically hung with her her whole life there in in rock and roll you know yeah tough life but oh my god what a voice and i hate to be daddy downer here but i'm kind of sliding into another case of this and this is a situation that i thought was different than it was at the end of her life and i'm talking about sandy denny Um, she was uh uh, briefly a member of the straubs most famously known for her role in fairport convention but those days Uh, She did have a solo career. She formed another group. I actually have one of the records, Father and Gay. Really? Yeah, and it was a progressive Renaissance style folk music. You know, the, the it was the progressive feel with the uh, the feeling of the Straubs or Fairport Convention. It was it was beautiful music, wow. and we know that she famously sang the duet with Robert Plant on the Battle of Evermore on Zeppelin Four. She got a symbol. She got a symbol. That's right. Uh, in the end, she also passed away way too young at age thirty-one, and I always was under the impression that she died from breast cancer. I always thought that that's what it was, and it turns out she had health issues related to extreme alcohol abuse and uh, a very sad loss because she was so young. And a lot of people believe she had a lot more to contribute to music in general, and that she would do had room to do other things that would take her to 
other places. And the song, Who Knows Where the Time Goes, one of my favorite, favorite songs of all time. Uh, not only recorded by Fairport, but also by Judy Collins, Eva Cassidy, your girl Nina Simone, 10,000 10, Maniacs. No, 10,000 Maniacs. Yeah. So. Across the evening sky All the birds are leaving But how can they know It's time for them to go but it makes sense that Natalie Merchant would be influenced by somebody like Sandy Denny, totally. So another tragic end, sadly, at the end of our episode here, talking about the great women in rock and roll. You can't cover it all in one day. We could have just done a series, like for a month or something, and we just thought to take big bites, but it, over a course of time would be better. And so we do the women in rock and roll. Uh, this is phase two which takes us from the 60s in through the early 70s, mid-70s. And there's so many more chapters in the story, so many more branches to explore here on this part of the tree of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. We are well aware that there are so many women that have played a major part in getting us to where we are today with rock and roll. And we know there are a few women that we left out. We could have. Oh yeah, we, we probably did. We probably did, and we'd love to know who we left out so that we can bring them up when we talk about other women in future episodes. We know we did not mention any of the women in Motown. We can't do it all in one episode, brother. We've learned that much. You can always contact us via email: imbalancedhistory at gmail dot com on Facebook. The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is our page, and we would love to hear from you on Twitter, Imbalanced Histo, no R-Y, and our website is imbalancedhistory.com. And if you're listening on one of the many apps that are out there, uh, please give us a star rating. You know, five is nice, but we're looking for that. And any reviews that you can post for us, thanks for doing that, especially the faithful who uh, tune in every week here to the podcast. We really appreciate you, and we want to thank you for your support here. Well, that's going to do it. Hanging with the ladies this week on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And as you can tell, Marcus, they were some of my favorite women. There's some uh, remarkable women who have done so much for the world of music and some very amazing humanitarian women as well. So yeah, they've made yeah. an impact on the world all around, and we need more strong women like them. We do, and we'll talk about them another phase. We'll come down the pike, I'm sure. Well, until we get to phase three of Women in Rock and Roll, we'll thank you for listening and invite you back for another episode. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. We'll catch you next time on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Ray and Marcus here to promote something we're really excited about. Our upcoming episode with one of the authors of the new book, Brother Robert. Subtitled Growing Up with Robert Johnson. We will speak with Preston Lauterbach, who co-wrote the book with Anya C. Anderson, Robert Johnson's half-sister. And in our interview, he gives us a view of how his book will affect blues history. I, I think it will certainly add a, a personal dimension to it uh, that fans of Robert Johnson have lacked. People keep asking me, well, you know, does this book explode the mythology? And I really think that those two portraits hang side by side. He gives us insights into the mindset of Robert Johnson as he made his way into adulthood. You know, you have to remember that 
he grew up with uh, several different last names. And you can only imagine what kind of an identity crisis that would cause with a person. And he gives us a glimpse of why the long-held notion of Johnson as a loner was wrong. Robert didn't divulge his family history around his blues friends. And he didn't really go into uh, his music career with his family. And so he very deliberately kept these lives separate. And yes, we will discuss the devil. (laughs) (laughs) We will release our interview and what we see as the truth about this important figure in music history on July 6th. To set the table, we're re-releasing our two episodes about Robert Johnson and the progenitors of the blues on June 29th and July 2nd to whet your appetite for this exciting new storyline about the great Robert Johnson. Catch all of it here on the Imbalance history of rock and roll on the pantheon podcast collective or wherever you get your podcasts and the devil was walking side by side it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.